Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Instructor Podcast, where every week we're joined by experts and innovators, leaders and game changers, so we can hold a mirror up at the instructor industry and see where we can improve and raise our standards. So if you're ready, we'll make a start. So thanks for joining us today on the Instructor Podcast. We hope you're enjoying the show. And if you are, make sure you give us a subscribe or a follow wherever you're listening. So this drops into your feed every Sunday. And uh, if you're feeling extra generous, make sure you leave us a nice little five-star review with some glowing words of praise as well. So today on episode seven, we're joined by Rob Cooling. Now, Rob is an electric vehicle enthusiast and expert, and he brings his insights and knowledge into an area that's very divisive. You know, there's not a lot of people in the middle ground. There's a lot of people that don't know much, including me. But generally, I think people tend to go to one side or the other. So I found this a really interesting conversation. I'm not going to give my thoughts anymore. I'll let you listen to the conversation and find those out for yourself. And afterwards, as always now, we're joined by Chris Benstead of the DITC, providing us with the latest updates from within the industry um, with some excellent pieces today and a couple of thought-provoking insights as well. So I will now keep quiet and let you enjoy the show. So we are joined today by the wonderful Rob Cooling, who was kindly agreeing to come on and talk everything electric vehicles, not EV cars, as I refer to them. Uh, so thank you for joining us today, Rob. How are you? I'm very well today, thank you. Good stuff. Uh, right, so what I'd like you to do to begin with, just tell us a little bit about you, a little bit about your background, what led you to being an ADI, and, and where you're at now, what you're actually up to now. Okay, so backtracking. The gateway to uh, wanting to become an ADI was simply a burning desire to find some way of being self-employed so that I would have control over my own business, uh, my own marketing, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I quite enjoy sort of like um, having that sense of control over most things that I get to do. Um, that led towards sort of like uh, uh, beginning training. And interestingly, I never actually used to enjoy driving itself, uh, which is why it was always a little bit bizarre that I chose to become a driving instructor. And I did struggle through the qualifying process, but grit determination um, and uh, uh, lots of continued work. And I finally got there, became a PDI, uh, went on to obviously qualify. And that was in 2006 when I qualified and really enjoyed it. So although I never really enjoyed driving, I discovered that I really had quite, um, I suppose, a passion for teaching people to drive. And it was years later in 2011, when I decided to switch over to focusing just on um, what I describe as uh, pupils with special needs, learning difficulties, or those who struggle with the process of learning to drive. And I've been doing that ever since and really enjoying that. But that led me towards automatic. Uh, and it was 2015 when I test drove a Nissan Leaf. And from that moment on, I knew I had to go electric. And there was a delay where I 
slowly got past some of the misconceptions and trying to get my head around some of the details before finally taking the plunge with my um, uh, Nissan Leaf, the original one with its 80 mile range, which I will admit was a bit limiting for uh, my, my, my tuition in my first EV, moved on a bit since then. And to where I am now, um, well, I found myself talking a lot about EVs. Uh, I used to run the Nottingham EV Owners Club. I've done all sorts of bits and bobs, uh, various media bits for BBC, ITV, etc. I've stepped back recently just to focus on uh, EVs in the world of driving instructors, which is mainly done through a presentation that I run at associations and conferences and such like. And nowadays, I'm thoroughly enjoying my uh, Kia e-Nero, which has a range of 300 miles, showing just how dramatically things have moved on. Brilliant. There's there's a lot to pick out there. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> I went on a bit there. No, no, that's good. You uh, <laughs> Lots to talk about, but I'm going to go kind of back to one of the first things you said, which was about, I think it was not enjoying driving and struggling a little bit with it when you first yeah, died. Sure. There were a lot of similarities in, in your journey to mine because I never wanted to drive, ever. Uh, I think I learned when I was about 21 and 20 maybe, and that's because I was uh, a joiner and I didn't enjoy taking my tools about on the bus to go from site to site. So I had to learn to drive really. And, and I didn't enjoy doing it when I was first doing it, but eventually I settled down to enjoy it. So but I also struggled with my test, largely. And part of that was because I just didn't enjoy driving and had no burning desire to drive. How did you get on with your driving test all those years ago? Um, didn't enjoy the process. So I, I didn't particularly enjoy the process of learning to drive. And I found it was all a little bit of a rush. So this desperation to get the student through the test in a set amount of time. And that created quite a stressful experience for me. Um, I very clearly wasn't ready on the first uh, attempt at my driving test. And even looking at the second one that I did pass, that really also wasn't the best experience. And it meant that the early years of my driving, I was struggling and I didn't feel fully prepared for the situation that I found myself in. Now, thankfully, I did seek help and I did get further training later on, and that was a help. So that did offer some level of support to make things uh, a little bit easier for me. But I think it's part of what led me towards wanting to work with students who really also might not enjoy driving or might not enjoy the process of learning to drive to hopefully try and make it fun um, and achievable as well. But it's also led me to have a very comprehensive syllabus. So one of the things that I'm very strong on when I'm taking on my new students is that what I don't offer, so a product that I do not offer, is the idea of passing the driving test quickly. Instead, my uh, course is about a comprehensive experience. So there's a lot of dual carriageway in there. There's a lot of motorway work in there. There's a lot of long journeys. Um, many, many experiences, and there's quite a market for that. You know, students who aren't after a quick pass your test experience, but they want something a bit more comprehensive. Yeah, and again, there's a, a remarkable similarity to me there. 
I'm going to tell a quick story actually about my first driving test because I, I didn't pass first time. And then on another one of these, I might say how many attempts I actually took. But on my uh, first ever attempt, the examiner pulled me up and he said, right, we're going to do pull up alongside the car in front, reverse back into a park position behind it. And, you, you know, that's what we're going to do. And my response was, yeah, I don't know what that is. I've never done that. My examiner put me in for a test. We'd never practiced any manoeuvres. And you can imagine what happened from there. And that's something I use, like I think like you just said, it's it's almost, it's beneficial. It's benefiting me, not at the time, but now looking back, it's something I can use with my learners. And I tend to get a lot of people that come to me with anxiety and nerves and, and not necessarily learning issues, but but issues. Um, so yeah, it's, would you say that's significantly affected the way you teach? Definitely, yeah. So my own experiences have very much formed the way in which I will um, present my product. Now, of course, um, I will be very adjustable to the student. Um, my entire course is adaptable to the individual. And I very strongly you know, encourage their input into how we manage it, how we approach it. What I will not shortcut on, though, is... Um, the material which is important to someone really being put in a position where they are ready for you know what we always define as safe driving for life but it was also my experience with training to be a driving instructor that led to that mentality as well because once again it was that pre-set crash course through a whole ton of information dropped on you in an incredibly short period of time and then being told you're ready to take the part three and it all goes horrendously wrong again and again and again six times I had to take that part free and it took me a long time and it has left me you know looking back back on it thinking of how it really should have been and I have no doubt that there would have been better options for me better trainers that I could have pursued because my experience was not a good one it's interesting you say that and, and, and just touching back on on sort of your syllabus and the way you teach now like you've said there's there is a market there for people that don't just want to fast pass they they want to learn to drive and, and learn and develop new skills and uh, around driving is that how you market yourself is that what you put out there so it's not ruling out people but it's inviting that group of people in yeah, definitely. So I'll use the word comprehensive quite a lot, and I make that quite clear on the website. Um, so it, it's kind of built into the way in which I'll do all of my marketing and also making sure that the student kind of understands what it is that they are, you know, essentially letting themselves in for um, at the same time as, you know, including them in the process of what it is that they want as well. You know, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, but yeah, I, I will make that sort of like quite clear and long gone are the days where I would feel like I had to get the student through in a preset number of hours because I remember those early days for me and the pressure of feeling like you had to get the student through in this preset number of hours as people around you told you, oh, I've got my student through in whatever number of hours it happens to be. And the bottom line is, you know, you've got to move at the pace of the student the time frame is dictated more by the student than by the instructor and the instructor's job is to adapt to that and work with that now of course you want that to happen in what is potentially the shortest time frame that would be nice um, but at the same time i think you do need to make sure that the content material is in there that we're not editing out some rather important stuff so i include all of that 
and the student can see what's in the course as well. And obviously they don't have to um, choose me, not, not by a long shot, um, but it's putting that product out there saying, this is what I do. And obviously, uh, you know, if you want that, I'm here. And, and there is, there's a very strong demand for the opposite of pass the driving test quickly. Yeah, and I find that fascinating because one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to show people there is a different way. And you, like me, I'm sure, in a lot of different Facebook groups, and Facebook has many a wonderful use, but it's also got many a, a negative side. And I'll see a lot of people say, no, it's always been done this way, or people only want this thing. And I find it interesting that you're putting something different out there and you're getting that, that influx of customers, influx of people wanting what you're putting out there. So by doing something different, you're attracting the customer that's suitable for you. I like that. Yeah, and I enjoy it. <laughs> it's, it's much more enjoyable. I'm a lot happier now than I was in my early days as a driving instructor. And I suppose that happens to all of us. You know, you sort of like find your way eventually, uh, fall into what is right for you and how you need to do things. Um, I mean, I like the word structured. You know, um, I'm a very, very strong believer in um, doing my best to be client-centered you know coaching love stuff like that fantastic i'm not going to claim to be an expert at it by a long shot but i do love the word structured and i think sometimes we might underestimate the importance of the student's sense of what is going on because when i learned to drive and when i trained to be a driving instructor i had no understanding of what was happening i couldn't see the structure I couldn't see the pattern. I couldn't see the syllabus and how it was going to lead me to the end result. So in my lot, um, I have a very uh, clear structure, um, a syllabus which is broken into five stages and they can see what they're doing. They can see where they're at. They can see where they're going and they can see how much longer they've got ahead of them. So the journey is all mapped out and nice and clear. Doesn't mean that the whole thing can't be changed and modified and adapted. It is not set in stone but there is a feeling of the purpose of everything we do and what the next step is. It's client-centred. Suppose <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. But I used, to, I used to feel lost, you know, whenever I was learning uh, my lessons or to be a driving instructor, I just felt lost. I, I couldn't see where it was going um, and I was just sinking all the time. Yeah, I can, I, can under, I can relate to that and I can relate to that with my early days as an instructor in that I wasn't the best instructor and thinking back to how I was with some of my students and learning from my mistakes with them to to improve to where where I am now but no, I think it's some, some key points you're making there and I think the market uh, the marketing guys call it uh marketing for ideal client don't they so you pick your ideal client in your market for that person don't rule out anyone else but it attracts more of that people and like I said I think that there's a different way and I like that you you're doing that essentially. But I am now going to bring this back round to EVs. I think the first question I want to ask you on this, I may have misheard this, but when you first went to using an electric car, did that, were you originally teaching in a manual and then you went? I was, yeah. So um, I switched over to focusing just on um, special needs and such like in 2011, but I was in a manual. Um, and what I started to realize was that a lot of my students were coming to me 
because I was advertising, you know, um, that I was specialising in students with learning difficulties and such like. Um, and that was how they were finding me. But a lot of these students actually needed automatic and they were only learning manual because that was what I was providing. And it was becoming increasingly clear that I really needed to transition over to automatic, mainly for those reasons, because my client base had shifted. And that's what triggered the initial looking into uh, EVs. I mean, before that, I, I would never have gone automatic. And I used to give the argument that, you know, I had no interest in auto. And I would never have perceived myself going in that direction. And my market, you know, my inquiries were all manual. It felt like it was all manual. But once you start to advertise that you are automatic, you know, for me, that really opened the floodgates. And you suddenly discover there is a lot of work out there in that automatic side of things. And it is growing as well. When you transitioned from manual to automatic, how did you manage that with your students? Because I'm, I'm guessing there were some that still wanted to learn manual. There was. So what I did was I ran a six month overlap transition between manual and automatic. So I had the manual car and the auto car side by side for six months. And I quickly became rather desperate to get out of the manual car and just be able to live in the uh, in the EV, in the automatic car. And all of my uh, existing students, we had that six months to try and get you know everything done finished and through the driving test. And all bar one, it worked out. Um, and that one, I helped to find somebody who could uh, finish the process. There were a couple of my manual students that requested a trial in the uh, automatic, in the EV, and then went on to switch over to learning just in the automatic. Cool. Now, I'm gonna lay my cards on the table here for anyone listening in the, I will be going EV at some point, definitely. I've got it penciled in for 20, I don't know what year we're in now, 2021. I've got it penciled in for 2024, I think it is. Um, just that's when it's going to be convenient for me. And I, I'm someone that does believe it's the future. I will at times now, I'm going to get onto this topic, try and play devil's advocate a little bit. But the first question I want to ask you about this significantly is what are the problems that you found because I'm sure that you're someone that will come out and say all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. But in your time driving these vehicles and teaching these, what are the what are the problems, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, so overwhelmingly, it's been a very, very positive experience. But the very first uh, EV that I had was a uh, what's called a 24 kilowatt hour Nissan Leaf. So it's quite an early model. Um, and you're looking at a range of around 80 miles, which is quite limiting for a driving instructor. Now, because I was very keen to do this, I was prepared to adapt my day around the car. So I was, you know, building in brakes to allow the car to recharge. But, the, you know, most of us would not be happy doing that, understandably, taking your time uh, out of the day for the car. However, you know, the modern generation of EVs are pretty much broken past those issues. Um, as the range of the vehicle, you know, is, is tripled, quadrupled now. However, there's, there's one issue, which is one of the things that I wish someone had told me when I was buying my first EV, and that is the effect of winter. Now, in winter, what we find is that the range of the vehicle is more affected than with combustion. 
Now, all cars efficiency is affected by winter, but EVs suffer this a little bit more. And generally the range is knocked down by about a third. If your car starts with an 80 mile range and you lose a third of that, that is pretty significant. <laughs> yeah. But if you've got a 300 mile range EV and you lose a third, it's not quite as dramatic. You know, it's not quite so much of an issue. But on the earlier technology, yeah, the, the winter effect was noticeable. Um, is that the biggest problem you come across, just that in winter? Um, obviously, you had an issue with it being a quite a small range, but that's you've gone past it now. Is that is that really the only problem you've come across? I've got to be honest, because if there was any more problems, I guarantee I would say them because I'm a very big believer um, in being honest about the issues and the complications. But the reality is, you know, um, if I quickly run through things, you know, uh, insurance was pretty much identical in terms of cost. Um, obviously, there was no tax at the moment. Um, MOTs is the same. Servicing is significantly cheaper. I mean, I've just done my cheaper. first service on my e-Nero and it was 85 pounds at the main dealership uh, for the first service on the e-Nero. And that's because there's so little to service, you know, they're, 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 there's so little to do with them. Uh, what else have we got? Running costs are phenomenally cheaper. So my £240 a month petrol bill uh, is now sitting at £30 a month for electricity. So that's £210 a month cheaper. Um, but obviously, that saving is used to offset the fact that the car cost more to buy than the combustion equivalent. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a swings and roundabout situation there. But the number one thing I want to emphasize the number one reason why um, I would argue it's better is the driving experience. Now, the driving experience is something else. It's very hard to explain, uh, but I went from not enjoying driving to now, actually, I like driving. And that's simply from switching over to EV. I would happily pay more to be in an EV because I enjoy it so much more. But nothing's gone wrong. Um, yes, the range can be limiting on the older models. Yes, winter has a bit more of an effect on the range. Uh, nothing's broke, nothing's gone wrong. I've never had such reliable cars. So, <laughs> and I haven't got, got to go to the petrol station. I used to go to the petrol station twice a week. Now I just wake <laughs> up and I've got 300 miles sat in the battery every single morning. Um, so I, I, I'm sorry to be so biased, but I'm overflowing with positives. Um, quite genuinely struggling with the negatives. I, I could talk a little bit about the charging network. Stop me if I'm waffling. Um, but I've got to say, even there, my experiences have been 90% positive. Yes, I've come across the odd one that's not working, um, or there's issues with the network here and there, but all of those are short-term transitional problems. You know, we're, we're getting past all of those issues. We're, we're going to hit a stage where there's more charges than petrol state. I mean, there already is actually um, more charges than petrol pumps uh, at some point in the future. So those issues, we'll get past them. I think those sort of minor issues you mentioned there as well. To me, they're they're almost irrelevant because sometimes petrol stations close. You know, I'm, you know, bad plan on my part, we're low on petrol, I'll nip here and, and it's close for summer, or you, you can't fill in, so you've got to go somewhere else, which is effectively the same as um, your charging unit not working properly. So to well, me... I went, that... um, I went down to um, uh, Asda earlier on today, 
and there was a long queue going into the petrol station. Now, I don't know why that was, but, um, you know, there's no way that would have been a five minute refuel, you know, sat in that queue. Um, and I've got a memory of going to Corley services once and there were signs up saying, you know, no petrol. Um, so we had this situation where the, the EVs could charge for whatever reason. There was no petrol at the uh, the petrol station. So um, obviously both sides have their issues. Uh, it's not to say that EVs are perfect. There's always going to be problems and anything we build has the potential to go wrong. But yeah, my experiences have been um, very good. I mean, I must admit, I've got an image now of you sat at that service station, like rubbing your hands together, like some kind of Bond villain looking over at the petrol station. Um, the, the two things that, that I would view on, the two things that will concern me, one of which you've just mentioned, actually, was the driving experience. In I've, I've only ever driven an automatic car once um, many years ago. But I didn't enjoy it. And this is just a personal preference. Yeah. And but yet you're saying that you preferred the the automatic version, I suppose, if you like. What's the reason behind the preference? Or is it just some a feeling or it's a sensation to do with how the car responds. So having spent, you know, um the first few months in an EV, going back to combustion, okay. Now this is gonna sound um rather almost insulting to combustion which i'm very wary of doing because of course for a lot of people combustion is their passion they enjoy it so i want to emphasize this is this is me this is how i feel about things but um many of us are the same that you discover this passion going to ev that didn't exist with combustion whereas others will find a passion in combustion and might you know therefore understandably resist ev but when you've spent a bit of time in an EV and you switch back for whatever reason to combustion, it's a bit like going from Star Trek to the Flintstones, which is a ginormous exaggeration. But the responsiveness, the feeling is so different. There's a lagginess in combustion, which I think comes from the fact that with combustion, when you put your foot down, there's a lag where the car's got to convert that petrol into energy into movement whereas with an ev it's just stored in the battery and released instantly so you get this much more instantaneous this much more responsive feel to the car and it's smooth and it's quiet and it's comfortable and when you get to acceleration that doesn't have that interruption as the car changes from one gear to the next i would never want to add those little interruptions back in again, having got used to this beautifully smooth acceleration curve that you get with an EV. More examples. I've got memories of trying to go up hills in combustion cars and feeling the engine struggling and having to drop down the gears just to make the car climb the hill. You don't get that in an EV. If you need more power, it's there and it's just released at whatever speed you happen to be at. If I'm at 50 miles an hour and I want to overtake, I know there isn't gonna be an issue. You, know, you put your foot down, there's a response. Whereas in my Yaris, you put your foot down and not a lot happens. You might have to drop down a gear or do whatever you need to, but all of a sudden combustion just feels like what it really is, patched up 19th century technology. And we are long overdue an upgrade that moves beyond that. And EV offers that. 
I like it. Uh, you're selling me already. <laughs> you're doing something right. the, the, the main thing here is I always say to people, you, you've got to drive the cars. You know, you, you've got to drive the cars um, or talk to the owners with practical experience. Um, generally, you know, once someone's gone EV and lived with an EV, it is hard to go back. Some people do because they run into problems with the technology, like charging networks um, or the range of the vehicle. But it's the driving experience that is the number one reason people stick with EV. Not the environmental argument, not the cost-saving argument. It's the driving experience. Do you find that you have to, what's the word I'm looking for here, do more planning? Um, because I know, like you said, your range would probably cover you on a daily basis. But if you were travelling the country... yeah. Do you find that you have to do more planning to specifically look at where you can charge? Yes, um, but now that my current EV has a 300-mile range, which interestingly is identical to the 300-mile range of my, um, my last Toyota Yaris, it's no different. So they both cars have exactly the same range. So in the same way with the Yaris, I had to know where the petrol stations were when you're running towards the end of your 300 miles, the only difference is rather than knowing where the petrol station is, you just need to know where the charging station is. Um, and once you've driven 300 miles, you're ready for a break. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we should all be ready for a break way before 300 miles. But, um, you know, we go, caught, not, not lately because of lockdown, um, but we've done plenty of trips to Wales and Cornwall, all that kind of thing. And we haven't really had any issues. All you do, is you load up one of the websites like PlugShare, ZapMap, and you tap in where you want to go, and it will show you the charging network for that area. And you just click on a charger, have a little look, and just make sure you're there at the time that you know you're going to refuel or whatever you need to. Um, my experiences there have been pretty positive, and at the moment, the UK has over oh goodness, what is it? Um, eight? No, no, thirty-eight thousand connectors on the network, and we're now gaining more than 500 each month without exaggerating i am absolutely surrounded in nottingham by charges it really is getting a bit ridiculous in nottingham they're everywhere there's got to be way more than we've got petrol pumps and it's useless to me because i live in nottingham i've got my own one on the side of my house all of these public ones i don't need um, you need them to be of course where you're going to so when i go to wales i gotta be honest the network in wales is pretty bad. Um, so if I lived in Wales in a terraced house and I wanted to go EV, I would think twice. Yeah. Because that is a very different situation to what I've got in Nottingham. That makes sense, actually. Um, how, again, I'm struggling to phrase this one. How much of this do you think is fear of the unknown in the sense that, for me, I've never driven in an electric vehicle so i don't know what it's like and i don't know where the charges are but part of that is before i drove a mini because i drive a mini now before that i never saw minis on road you start driving your mini you see a mini everywhere so is it a little bit like that you start driving your, your ev and all of a sudden oh yeah there are loads of charges everywhere because you start noticing them yeah Right. Yeah, I mean, you, you've probably driven past lots and lots before, but what we've had is a very patchy network. Um, we still do, um, but it's it, it's getting sorted, I think is the best way to put it. 
So back when I first went to EV, uh, there were chargers around, but they're a little bit hidden. So you might find, you know, that there's one in the back of the Holiday Inn car park. You know, there's one in the back of um, your local leisure centre. And the difference is petrol stations are large and prominent, and that gives a confidence in being able to refuel. Whereas EV chargers tend to be a little bit hidden away, so they're not visible. And it creates this impression that there's not that many around, whereas in fact, there's actually quite a lot of them. Now, we are just starting to see uh, the EV equivalent of a petrol station. So we're gaining now large stations kitted out with lots and lots of very high speed chargers. And there's going to be hundreds of these things popping up across the UK uh, across the next few years. I mean, by the time we get to 2030, which really isn't that far away, um, the EV charging network is going to be really, really good. And bear in mind, we've actually already got an incredibly good network. You know, the national grid covers the entire country. All we have to do is keep adding new plugs to it and upgrading as we go along. Um, so that's going to get sorted. And what fascinates me is that we've got 8,000 petrol stations left and falling all the time. Now, I've got this slight suspicion that by the time we get to 2030, this idea of range anxiety is actually going to switch from being an electric car problem to a combustion car problem. As suddenly, there's not going to be nowhere near as many petrol stations as there are nowadays. I can see what you're saying there. I think my sort of counter to that, I suppose, is you can envisage the supermarket still having them. And everyone knows where their supermarket is. So, and this would be, I suppose, almost a fear of the unknown and, and knowing what you know, in that for me, I've got Morrison's that way, I've got Azza that way, five minutes both ways, I can go full up either time. Well, that's my safety net. And that's more than likely going to stay there. So for the people that are a bit almost died in the wool, a bit set in their ways, they're still going to see it that way. Then You know, they're a bit... I shouldn't probably say this, but a bit stubborn. They're not going to be able to see the bigger picture because they'll always fill up at that same service station and have that fear of the unknown yes. of the, yeah. the electrics. Totally. Something else you mentioned there, uh, you mentioned high-speed chargers. Yeah. So what sort of time are we talking with the high-speed ones for, like a full charge or a part charge? Or? Brilliant question. And um, I'm going to be annoyingly slightly complicated with the answer <laughs> because we're in sort of like this muddled time where it's all being worked through. So um, I'll give the short version. If we jump back 10 years, when the Nissan Leaf first appeared on the market, the quickest we could get 100 miles into a battery was one hour. It's now roughly 10 minutes. So that's the kind of improvement we've had across the last 10 years. So the Nissan Leaf, the original one, had what's called a 50 kilowatt onboard charger which means it can accept electricity at a rate of 50 kilowatts in one hour. The fastest we have installed in the UK right now is 350 kilowatts. That's a dramatic increase in the speed that we can get electricity into a battery. Now that's happened in 10 years. So imagine where we're gonna be by the time we get to 2030. But our problem is that technology hasn't yet standardized. We can do it. It exists right now, but you have to have a car that is capable of accepting that amount of energy that fast. So it's no good delivering the energy that quickly if the car can't receive it. Yeah. So if you can afford 
a nice shiny new Tesla or a Porsche Taycan or even some of the brand new Kia or Hyundai offerings, you can charge at over 200 kilowatts. Now that's got to be about 100 miles per 10 minutes or so. So that's pretty fast, yes, that's not bad at all. Um, but the reality is, you know, on the market at the moment, most EVs are charging at somewhere around the 70 kilowatt mark. That's not bad. Um, so mine charges at about, I would say, 75 kilowatts maximum, which means if I've managed to deplete the 300 mile battery, um, I would need to take an hour, hour and a half break. Maybe I'm not quite sure, actually, to try and get that back again. But my argument would be if you've managed to wipe out a 300 mile battery, you probably need an hour break anyway. <laughs> um, uh, but it's easy for me to say that when I've got a home charger, I'm very conscious that other people who would be reliant on the network, you know, the public network would be in a different scenario to me. Half the population can have a home charger. So that helps. That really helps. But the other half of us are going to have to rely on the public network. I mean, to dumb that down for me a little bit, essentially, if I had a home charger, I shouldn't yeah. need charging while I'm out. I should just be able to go, do my yeah. lessons, come back. If for any reason I did need to, like you say, 30 to 30 minutes to an hour for their lunch, and then I'm fine. Yeah, potentially. Um, I'm slightly wary of saying you'll definitely be fine. The yeah. reason being, manufacturers might say to you, yeah, oh, yeah, half an hour, you'll be okay. Um, but in reality, there's more to it than that. You know, it depends on what charger you've plugged into. Um, it depends on you know how full your battery already is as to how quickly it will actually charge. Um, so there's varying factors as to the speed of the car charging. I think the, the shortest summary is it's always getting quicker. And by the time we get to the year 2030, all EVs should be charging at you know, fairly reasonable speeds, getting close to what combustion can manage. Because if in 2030, we've got EVs that are charging at the same, near same speed as a combustion car can refuel, then all of the problems with having a terraced house and no home charger go away. They are transitional problems. They're not permanent issues. They're transitional issues, which we can, or we will, eventually get past. But they're also valid problems. Yeah, and I think with the charging thing, again, I'm just going back to what I said before, I think a lot of it, for me previously, and a lot of people now, is that fear of the unknown. Um, but as you've just put across there, there's actually very little to be afraid of. And I suppose if you were, because it is a big switch, going from a manual car to a to an EV, yeah. it's a big switch. So I suppose if you were doing that anyway, you'd, be sensible in taking the time to investigate your local area regardless. And, you know, what you were saying there kind of stems into another passion of mine, which is instructor health in that, again, I'm using myself as an example. When I first started, 15 minutes between every lesson. Let's just plow through, get as many hours as you can, get home, have your tea, sleep, back out next day. Whereas now I take a much more um, healthy approach, have that gap. And, and so even if, like you say, you, you are in an hour gap at time between lessons. That's not the end of the world. That's only going to benefit you. So at the minute, even though I'm actually trying, you know, I'm failing miserably to, to throw a spanner in your works. <laughs> but just the, the one thing I would ask, actually, just regarding the, the, the range, um, how accurate are they? So, you know, like you said, in, in the winter, that range drops. But is it higher than it states in the summer or is that generally pretty accurate? 
Uh, I'll tell you my experiences. The Nissan Leaf was a little bit um, erratic in its ability to guess how many miles it had remaining. Um, now, again, sort of like you probably find the same is true of combustion cars, but of course, in a combustion car, it doesn't prominently display on the dashboard how many miles you've got left, um, at least not all of them. Whereas an EV will generally make that very in your face. You know, it will make it very clear. This is how many miles you have remaining. And that's what can cause that slight feeling of, oh, you know, it's not like, how's this going to go? So uh, being honest, the Leaf wasn't brilliant at guessing how many miles you actually had remaining. So you ended up having to have a bit of a buffer to be absolutely certain you were going to be okay. Having said that, uh, the modern stuff seems to have pretty much improved a lot on that. Uh, and we currently have a, a Kia e-Niro and a Hyundai Ioniq, our family car. And both of those seem very solid, very accurate in being able to gauge the range of the vehicle. I've been really impressed. Uh, the thing that's really amazed me is that Kia are advertising that the e-Niro has a maximum range of 282 miles. Now I'm used to manufacturers overselling their cars and I've never had a car before that has massively outperformed what the manufacturer claims because all through summer, I was getting a consistent, you know, 320 miles, not just what the car was telling me it could do, it actually was doing that. So I'd get to 300 miles after a couple of days and have 20 miles left. So it actually achieved what it was it told me. Short answer, used to be a bit erratic, seems to be a lot better. Again, as the technology evolves, um, I guess the algorithms are getting better and the manufacturers are learning how to build these cars uh, better. Yeah. I mean, I'd imagine as well, a lot of this is still fairly new technology. So it's constantly yeah. evolving yeah. and... Some, you know, you look at the way just with everything with, you know, social media, the internet, mobile phones, you know, wasn't that long ago, mobile phone was a brand new thing. And in space of 20 years, look at it, look at it now, it's bonkers. Um, stepping away from the technology side slightly then, driving licenses, we've obviously got a manual license or a <laughs> full license, and we've got the, the automatic licenses. Now, and imagine this is an argument you get thrown at you quite a lot people should be made to have a full license or a manual license, whatever you want to refer to as, and then they can choose afterwards what they want to drive. Yeah. How would you retort to that? So historically, um, having an automatic only license, you know, uh, sorry, an automatic only driving license would have been a serious restriction. Whereas really nowadays, it's no longer the significant uh, restriction that it used to be. It doesn't mean that there isn't an issue there at all. So we're in a rapidly changing scenario where we've hit a point now where over 50% of all new cars are now automatic. And manual is predicted to be under 40% of the market by the end of this year. Now, various manufacturers are setting deadlines to end the production of manual cars. Some already have. It is very unlikely that the manual car is gonna survive the decade. We are looking at quite a radical, quite a drastic, quite a sudden change in our industry. But of course, the second-hand market is going to be mainly dominated by manual cars for quite some time to come. By 2035, you know, it's, it's gonna be a very, very different picture. But I would suggest that people who say that taking a manual license to keep your options open are correct. I think that is right. 
I did gently try to push my daughter, who's just turned 17, towards manual for exactly that reason. She resisted. So we've gone straight down the automatic route. And if there's issues with manual, we can tackle that later on. We can always do another driving test in the manual car if we really have to. My take on this is that the bottom line is it has to be the student's choice. And I've got a line that I like to kind of use for this, um, which revolves around the idea that there are many drivers out there, now this included me, who cope in a manual car, but could be thriving in a modern automatic. And if the choice is between coping with driving and thriving with driving, go for the thrive option. However, if the student has a passion for manual, obviously manual makes sense. But I want to suggest the idea that when someone chooses manual, a lot of them aren't choosing manual out of a burning desire to learn manual. They're choosing manual because it's sensible. It keeps the options open. If they could go straight to auto, a lot of them would do. But manual does that option of allowing you both ways. But it's not necessarily because they want to drive a manual car. Depends. Individual circumstances. Yeah. And the problem I've got here is that while you're talking, I'm trying to think counter arguments and you keep answering them before I've actually said them. Which is <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, because in fact, I'm going to put this one to you again. I suppose you've kind of answered this, but could you sell manual driving lessons in the sense of if, if I was to say, Rob, I want to hire you for a week to go and advertise my driving school, which is a manual car. Yeah. Could you do that or would you just not be able to? Would you find yourself just there's not enough to sell it on? So you're talking for someone who's uh, passed in an automatic and then wants to upgrade to a manual license. Is that the kind of thing you mean or? No. So just imagine for whatever reason you had to switch to a manual car or I hired you to yeah. come and get me some students in my manual car. Would you be able to do that? Would you be genuinely struggling to find plus points for, for driving and learning in a manual? Oh, uh, oh, I'm going to be hugely biased here, I'm afraid, on this one. <laughs> Being honest, um, uh, this is going to sound a bit extreme, but I've reached the point where I think I would rather quit and go back to manual combustion. Now, I know that's a little bit radical. Um, I know I'm not alone in that as well, but that might give a slight sense of just how... Um, big this transition has been for me switching over to EV um, I think I would give up driving now before go back to manual combustion uh, and that's not meant to be an insult to people that love manual combustion because we all have our own sort of like take on this but I feel that strongly about it um, and the weird thing is my wife does as well I mean when I bought that Nissan Leaf um, and she tried it she immediately said, I want to get rid of the family car and buy another Leaf. Within a month, we had two electric cars on the driveway and she feels the same way that I do about it. And our forums are full of people in the same kind of position. So it's a bit hard to explain why just changing the fuel source would create that kind of sensation of it being so important. Um, now, I love my job. I, I love teaching people you know, to drive. But um, uh, yeah, I've got to be honest, going back to manual combustion would be... I would find that hard. I would find I, that hard. I 
thoroughly enjoyed the answer. <laughs> <laughs> See, I try to tread carefully sometimes because sometimes when you uh, uh, promote the thing that you're, you know, you're really into, um, it can seem very much like you're knocking what somebody else is into. But this is what I'm getting from talking to you. You're not. You're not knocking anyone. You're saying what you're passionate about. At no point have you said anyone's wrong to teach manual. You've actually, you have given a couple of plus points for it. Not big ones, admittedly, but a couple of plus points for manual there. But that's your passion, and, and, and I like that, and I think it shines out. I think the, the, the other thing I want to ask on that, just sort of touch on, and this is what would happen if everyone went automatic today? What would happen if everyone went electric? We couldn't cope, could we? No, we wouldn't cope. Um, and, and, of course, that's not thankfully what's going to happen so the last thing we want is for everyone to suddenly switch over at the same time because if we're talking about electric the bottom line is um the industry cannot pivot that quickly it's desperately struggling at the moment to keep up with demand i mean if we jump back a few years to 2018 uh, which was the point when demand for evs really began to pick up it took the industry by surprise uh, and created great big waiting lists for electric cars. I had to wait nine months for my um, current EV to be built. You know, that was how high demand had gone. Now, the industry is trying to move quickly. Uh, Volkswagen in particular are rapidly converting their you know, combustion factories over to um, EV to try and see if they can ramp up to a level where they can meet demand. But to try and give some idea of just how quickly this has moved, um, it took, you know, from 2009 to 2019 to get EV sales from zero to 1% of the market, the new market. Um, and then from 2019 to where we are now, it jumped from 1% and it's currently sitting at 7.5%. Now, that is a phenomenal rate of increase and it's not going to slow down if anything it's going to keep increasing so the industry trying to keep up with that is going to be quite a struggle um, now it depends if we're talking about it in terms of the grid as well you know if you're referencing can the grid cope with everyone uh switching over to evs and i would say for anything like this you always have to go to the experts you know not journalists you've got to go to the people that know what they're talking about so I would only take the answer from the national grid because the national grid have produced what's called the future energy scenario. And it's um, uh, documents on their website that look at how this is going to work as we all transition over towards EVs. The very short version is it's going to be OK, um, <laughs> but it does involve, you know, a, a gradual increase in our energy capacity It involves lots of um, uh, local upgrades to the network. The problem actually isn't capacity, it's distribution, you know, getting the energy uh, to all of the places, but it's more than possible. It's more than manageable. Um, and I won't waffle on too long about how it works. It's to do with two-way energy flow. Currently we do one way. Grid sends energy to us. The future version, it goes both ways. And right now you can sign up to the trials for that. So anyway, that's a whole different story. Um, yeah, sorry, have I gone off on a tangent there or did that actually answer what you meant by the question? It did answer the question in that we, we couldn't necessarily cope right now, but we will do. A gradual transition will be fine. Yeah. If we all switched overnight, it's not going to work. And 
it's probably a little bit unfair of me to, you know, portray the stereotype of a driving instructor, a stereotype of a stubborn driving instructor, because there's a lot of good ones. And there's a lot of open-minded and fair instructors. But the reason I'm, I'm kind of touching on that slightly is because I get stick online sometimes, and I don't consider myself a particularly polarizing figure. I would imagine that you get some stick online, because I would imagine that there are some circles you are quite polarizing because of the passion you've got for this and the passion that other people have for the combustion engine. Um, have you been, have, do you get stick? Do you get people being rude almost? I generally have a kind of, a, um, I guess a self-decided sort of like um, a, a way of interacting with the internet, which is only to engage as much as I can do on a, on a positive level. So if it looks like it's deteriorating into, you know, um, an argument rather than, uh, a discussion you know generally i'll just try and step away from that so i'll normally say i'm not interested at all in trying to convince someone who doesn't want to drive an ev to drive an ev you know if they tried to convince me to drive combustion i know how i would feel about that um and, and it would work both ways so i'm talking to the ev curious i'm interested in talking to people who would like to know a little bit more, who have questions and thoughts and interests. What I'm not really interested in is arguing with somebody over what kind of car they should buy. That is completely their choice. So generally I'll try and approach that as much as I can do um, on that kind of positive slant rather than that negative argument. Doesn't mean I haven't stepped wrong every now and again. Um, and you, you, know, you get this um, urge to correct somebody's uh, figures on you know EVs or they might sort of like claim that apparently our grid is run by you know coal that kind of thing which it you know it isn't <laughs> it definitely isn't um, and of course then of course you know you've you got to be careful because that's where you can easily get into a situation where things do go negative so still learning um, and sometimes treading carefully. I like that approach um, you know having the discussion but not an argument I like that. Uh, all right, so I'm going to start wrapping up now, but there is one question I want to ask you, stepping away from that for a moment. It's something that I saw you post about, about online I just wanted to, to ask you about, which was it looked like you'd been doing a lot of a lockdown in regards to Zoom lessons and recording stuff for your students, which has been quite impressive. Just tell me a little bit, I can't say the words, a little bit about that and about how that's gone. Now you've found doing that sort of thing over Zoom rather than in person. The Zoom driving lessons uh, came out of a request from an autistic student who was scheduled um, to start his driving lessons just before we went into um, this lockdown. So that would have been early January. Uh, and he was very disappointed that we wouldn't be able to uh, get started to begin his practical driving lessons. And it was his suggestion that we could try and work something out online. So I have to confess to having been a little bit edgy about it, a little bit nervous about, um, I suppose, being a little bit outside of my comfort zone. You know, how on earth do you uh, conduct a driving course, which you're being paid for, because I was being paid for this, um, and provide something which you feel is meaningful and good quality over the internet. And so uh, I spent quite a bit of time planning it, trying to structure it, trying to work out how to do it. Um, and what the, uh, uh, the other lad was interested in as well. Um, and actually between you know, January 
and our very final one, which I think was yesterday, we pretty much covered <laughs> the entire driving course. <laughs> um, we, we, we finished on dual carriageways and motorways uh, just yesterday. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating when we start practical driving lessons to see if it's helped, you know, it, it, what it's done, um, because I'm not yet going to stand by how well it's, you know, going to convert into the practical driving lessons. But I've had a lot of feedback from uh, his mum. And I think one of the big things was that actually it was a blessing in disguise because she felt like um, the fact that we were able to meet um, on a weekly basis over the Internet via video was better for him than if it had been face to face in terms of him being inside of his comfort zone. So I was outside of my comfort zone, but actually uh, it was probably a better environment for this particular student. So it's been fascinating. I, and sadly, I haven't got time in my diary to keep it going because I've had requests to carry on uh, the online Zoom driving lessons. But, you know, between work and transporting kids to and from college, uh, sadly, there's no way I can carry it on. I find it fascinating, I'll be honest with you, because I, I, I've said for a while that I'd love to teach someone for six months without them starting the car and see what they were like when they start the car. So I'm going to be intrigued to know how that Me goes. Too. Me too, yeah. It's going to be interesting. Two final questions to wrap up, and these are what sure. I'm, I'm asking everyone at the end. So I think I can almost guess at what at least part of the answer might be. First one. What change would you like to see to our industry? If you could click your fingers and make one significant change to our industry, what would it be? Okay. Um, I think I'm going to go with the one that just jumps straight into... Um, no, actually, no, I know exactly what I want to go for. I was about to go for um, making automatic licenses apply to all cars because other countries have experimented with that and that's worked fine. But I'm not going to go for that one because there's something I feel stronger about. Mandatory CPD. Um, so the idea of having a minimum number of hours and a chance in the standards check before it begins to sit down just for five minutes with the examiner and say, this is what I've done. I would love that. It's interesting you say that because every instructor I've spoken to regarding this podcast, they've not all said it for this question, but they've all mentioned that same thing, that we should be doing more, that as an industry, we, we're a little bit lapsed, a little bit slack in that area. So it's, it's interesting oh, you say that. Yeah. That might even tie into my final question, which is if you were going to leave with one tip for every ADI or PDI that's listening to this now, you can give them all one tip, one piece of advice, what would you give them? adapt the pace of the learning to the needs of the student. Excellent. I like it. Well, I think I mentioned before, my idea behind this podcast was to, to get experts, to get industry leaders, innovators, game changers in and speak to them. And you're one of them. And it's been brilliant speaking to you. You haven't changed my mind because I was always going that way anyway. <laughs> and... But I have tried to throw some awkward questions your way and everyone I've thrown at you, you're batted back with, with a plum. So, um, so yeah, it's been brilliant speaking to you. Thank you for coming on today. Where can people catch you? What social media? Is there anything you want to plug while you're on it? Um, oh, I'm all over the place on social media and very happy to take um, questions about uh, EVs or uh, any, anything else along those sort of lines or whatnot. So, um, yeah, no, very active on all social media, I believe. Um, 
And uh, the only other things that I do is I run those EV uh, presentations, which I will happily do for uh, any associations that ask me via Zoom or in person uh, if it's localish um, when the rules allow. Excellent. Well, uh, when the podcast release, I'll put the, any links you want in the show notes so people can always go there, click you to find you. But as I mentioned before, thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. No problem. I really enjoyed that. So big thank you there to Rob Cooling. Um, it's really good of him to join us. And it was great to hear his insights on it. He's answered a lot of the questions I threw at him. He batted uh, some of the trickier questions, I believe. He batted them back of the plum. Yeah, and it was, it was just a fascinating conversation. It's definitely opened my eyes a bit more. And whilst, as in the episode, I stated that I am a believer that electricity is a future, um, I was still sceptical as to how it would work. I was sceptical as to how efficient and how, um, I don't even know what the word is, but how appropriate it would be. And I think he's kind of put my mind at ease for a lot of that stuff. And the good thing about Rob as well is he's really open. He's, he's open to the discussion. He's open to the debate. He's, he's not going to shy away from giving his opinion, but he's very much, he's well thought out and articulate in his arguments or his reasoning. And the other thing is, it does what's right for him. So the him using the EV and, uh, you know, spoke about his family as well. It's, it's what's best for him. So just because it's not ideal for me right now or other people listening doesn't mean that it's not right for everyone. And it's going to be a slow process, but... Yeah, let's see where we go in the future. So, yeah, big thanks to Rob there. Um, we're now going to head over to Chris Benson of the DITC, who's got some of the latest news and updates, including around the latest developments with cyclists and mock tests from the DVSA. So let's hand over to Chris. Hi, this is Chris Benstead from the Driving Instructor and Trainers Collective, the DITC, the signposting hub for the industry. We are bringing the instructor podcast updates from around the driver training sector and keep in touch with what's going on. So firstly, critical worker theory tests. Critical worker theory tests don't exist anymore. They are not being offered by the providers. However, you can still get practical tests for critical workers as long as they've been booked through the employer. They are few and far between though. So, uh, Make sure that they investigate what is available to them before you make any plans. The other change to the theory test is the booking system. And the booking system is changing and it will be changing from the 8th of July. However, that will be for tests that are being taken from the 4th of September. So I found this a little bit confusing. Um, it's well worth having a read of the DVSA email uh, so that you can try and work it through. But basically, there's a new system coming into place. That's going to reduce down the availability to two months in advance, where it's been four months in, in advance so far. The temporary change is that from the uh, 4th of May, the amount of time that tests uh, could be booked in advance is being reduced by one day. By the time that the new booking system opens, which is going to be the 8th of July, sorry, it's a load of different dates I know, from the 8th of July, tests will only be available two months in advance. So they're reducing down that window, um, which I think, you know, for me, driving instructor head-on sounds like 
um, an excuse for offering less tests. But they're saying they're going to be offering more. So they're going to be opening up those windows of opportunity each day with, with more tests potentially available, especially as social distancing restrictions change. They're going to be able to offer more. There's a few bigger test centres that have been opened up and uh, you know they're, they're trying to maximise those windows uh, of opportunity for taking tests. But this sounds to me like it's a little bit the other way. I'm going to dig into it and if I can find out more, uh, listen to the next episode of the Instructor Podcast to, to hopefully find out more. If anyone knows more, please get in touch. We would love to know what you've been told. But uh, it's it's an interesting set of dates um, and it, it seems to, to be suggesting there's going to be less rather than more available from a booking perspective. I had a, a conversation with an ADI this week who had a test, uh, people who'd failed their practical test and their theory is coming to a, an end middle of July. Uh, so theory certificates going to run out. The only tests, practical tests that are available are in September. What do you advise that pupil? Hopefully you're going to get a practical test before July. But you also don't want to miss out on the opportunity of getting another theory sorted out. And you can't book a test that is after your theory expires. So whereas with another pupil, you might book a test for September and then try and get something sooner. They've got to sit in limbo until they find that, you know, that magic test that fits, fits in with their theory dates. Uh, again, something I'm, we're going to flag up to NASP and we're going to flag up to um, DBSA themselves and see if we can get some answers on, on what's advised. You know, what do we tell our clients about how that works? So, we will feed that back to you whenever we get the uh, the responses that hopefully are the ones that we're looking for. The DBSA themselves have released some really interesting information to have a look through. And that information is looking at the, um, uh, the, the test marking sheet, looking at the different skill areas. So looking at uh, there's 24 skill areas, as most of us will know if you've bothered to count them, but there are 24 and uh, they cover ancillary controls, awareness and planning, clearance of obstructions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they've released some guidance as to what that really means. And they're trying to encourage instructors to use that better inside of mock tests. So the DBS are really big on mock tests. I know there's mixed views between instructors. Um, I think it's personally think it's really good for, for people to know what they're going into. I, I think it's one of the big fears is we don't know what's the other side of that closed door. And once we know we can deal with it but until we get there, we make it into this big, scary beast. Um, so I, I like it from that perspective. I don't think it necessarily benefits driving. It doesn't help me know whether they're good enough or not, um, but it does help them deal with the day. I don't really care where the test is going to go. I don't really care you know, what's going to be um, experienced on the test. What I care is the, about is the format. And the better I can demonstrate that format to my learners, the better they will be able to achieve it on the day. Uh, as a lot of people know, I'm now exclusively doing um, theory training. I'm doing that via Zoom. Uh, so I'm not out on the road. Um, but still running the driving school and speaking to my instructors who are. Um, but with the theory, it's very much about talking them through that process so they know what they're going into to try and burst that fear bubble 
um, slightly and, and give them coping strategies that are going to help what is and is not acceptable. So worth having a look. Um, you, you may well find there is, is nothing new, uh, but it might give you a, a bit of a focus on, on things that you can put across. And the DVSA have been been good at explaining these things recently. Um, where the, you know what you choose to take from it is down to you but I would definitely take the time to have a look because you might find something that you didn't know or had a misunderstanding of. I think the one that's always stood out to me uh, was the difference uh, I had explained it very early days by an examiner I was having a chat with. I found a friendly one, uh, I know. Um, no, they're great, but especially local ones, we have such a good relationship with them, but they, they took the time to explain to me about speed and that you know, you, you've got these different speed issues of, of the legal limits and what was right for the situation, the situational limits, if you like, um, and, and how they view it and how they mark it. And, and knowing that really helped me assess how the examiner will be seeing um, those situations and uh, encourage sometimes a bit of commentary. I think that works really well. Um, to, to help with communicating the thought process to the examiner. So, you know, you don't want to be making excuses, but sometimes explaining things of, you know, talking through what you're thinking can really make the difference because, uh, you know, while, while they, they are all very good at their jobs, they're not mind readers. Uh, they can't necessarily tell exactly what was going on. And that bit of commentary can make the world of difference, as I'm sure most of you have tried. Uh, those who haven't, give it a go. It really helps. Um, just encouraging them to, to talk through that inner voice. And then finally, DFT have released a cycle-savvy driving project, uh, which has been developed in coordination with Bikeability. And they are looking for people to, uh, to sorry, they're not just looking for people. They're looking for driving instructors. They want ADIs uh, to get involved. They're trying to recruit 4,000 ADIs across the country uh, to get involved with, uh, with the Bikeability Project. Now, I've heard some, you know, sort of early whispers of things that have been going on with this project. And the people that were involved with it were really impressed. It made them look at things differently. The, poor old cyclists. You know, oft, often viewed as, as in the same way we view the annoying insects on the windscreen. Um, and they shouldn't be. They're road users as well. Uh, and I know you get the ones, what do we call them, mammals? The middle-aged men in Lycra. You get the ones that are out for a fight sometimes or want to prove a point or, have, you know, got a chip on their shoulder from the entire world. Um, but I think trying to teach our, our uh, clients that, how to deal with cyclists and for me the thing that stood out was why why are cyclists behaving in the way that they behave and i discovered um, was taught about something called primary position which is where the cyclist takes up a position in the middle of their lane and often as a driver you look at them and think oh if they moved over i'd be able to get through yeah you'd be able to get through skimming them on the way um, making them feel really threatened and squeezed in on the bit of road that's got all of the potholes that we complain about, the drain covers and the puddles. So primary position makes them safer. And I liken it to things like martial arts, where the key is taking up space. 
if you have space around you, we teach this in the car, bubbles of safety and various other variations on that. If you've got space around you, then you are going to be safer because if you hit nothing, then nothing is going to get damaged. Um, so, you know, the same is true for, for cyclists. And you know, this is part of what's being taught, um, part of what's being uh, channeled across to hopefully then better inform drivers and, and give us a, more of a approachable attitude between us and, uh, and our cycling colleagues. Um, that's not to say I don't get annoyed when I'm stuck behind cyclists. Um, I just try to remember that you know, they're, they're do doing it for the right reasons. Um, so well, well worth having a look. Um, you can access that through your chosen national association. Uh, the DIA and uh, the ADI and JC both sent out emails and I expect MSA have it as well. So uh, yeah, check it out through them and, and see how you can get involved and if it's something for you. Uh, knowing you know uh, a lot of driving instructors, we're, we're not the fittest bunch. Maybe it'll do some good to get out there on bikes. Uh, I'm claiming knee injury, which is why I, I won't be cycling along. Um, but I'm very intrigued to know what's going on with it. So if you hear, um, you know, get it, get in touch with myself or get in touch with Terry, and I'm sure one of us will be happy to have a chat with you and find out exactly what you learnt and uh, whether you think it was beneficial or not. Uh, be interesting so that's it for this week thank you very much stay safe out there so thank you to chris and the ditc for bringing these regular updates to the instructor podcast uh they're helping me i hope that you guys are finding them useful as well to keep you abreast of some of the latest news and also get a little opinion as well, which is always helpful. Uh, be sure to check out the DITC. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a member. I think it's a great service. Uh, they refer to themselves as the signposting hub of the industry, which I think is accurate, and they've got some great benefits as well. So, yeah, really appreciate them joining us every week now to bring us up to date with the latest news from within the industry. So thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, make sure you click subscribe wherever you're listening so that the next one will drop straight into your podcast feed. If you want to get in touch with the show, head over to tcdrive.co.uk. You can get in touch with me by any method over there. And remember, let's just keep raising standards and stay safe.